0: Welcome to the Gov Innovator Podcast. I'm Andy Feldman. Our focus today is the California Policy Lab, which is an important example of an effort to create close working partnerships between policymakers and university researchers. Our guests are its two executive directors, Janie Roundtree and Evan White. Here's a clip.
1: For me, I think the greatest success that I would point to is the cultural change that we're creating within government, the change in what they deem to be possible. It used to be that some of our partners, when posed, with a, you know, certain problem in a meeting would say, well, we can't do that, or we don't have that data. And now sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes they're saying, you know, that that might be possible. Let's check with the California Policy Lab to see if we could pull that off.
0: The California Policy Lab was launched at the start of 2017, with a mission to create partnerships between researchers at UCLA and Berkeley, and California's state and local governments, the goal to generate scientific evidence that solves California's most urgent problems. That includes the issues of homelessness, poverty, crime, and education inequality. To learn more, we're joined by Janie Roundtree, the Executive Director of the California Policy Lab at UCLA, and Evan White, the Executive Director of the California Policy Lab at UC Berkeley. Janie and Evan, welcome.
1: Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks, Andy.
0: Evan, I want to ask you about the origins of the lab. And I know you have a fun fact about a certain tech entrepreneur that helps make the point.
1: Yeah. So um, California spends the equivalent of Mark Zuckerberg's net worth every two months, which to us really demonstrates the impact that, that only governments can have. Um, and yet precious little spending is based on real evidence. So in starting the lab, we wanted to improve lives by making sure that public spending was informed by data and research. And we saw a real opportunity to do that by bringing together the expertise of UC researchers with the real-life problems faced by state and local policymakers in California.
0: That's helpful. Janie, can I ask you to give an example of some of the work that you all do?
2: Absolutely. At UCLA, our largest research areas homelessness, and we work with about a dozen public agencies that span health, mental health, homeless services, and the social safety net program to tackle what is, I think, the most urgent humanitarian crisis in our region. Every day, every year, Los Angeles is housing thousands of people, but the pace at which people become homeless is outpacing their ability to house people. So our work has been focused on reducing inflows to homelessness and on prevention strategies. And specifically, we built a large longitudinal integrated data system that spans eight different county agencies and have been examining service histories to predict county clients who are at risk of homelessness. And so we have now produced prediction models that we think predict which single adults are at highest risk of becoming homeless and the county here in Los Angeles are using those prediction models now to target prevention services. That's a partnership with the Department of Health Services. The DHS is now running a pilot where they are taking people from our prediction model risk and reaching out to intervene to see if they can prevent homelessness before it occurs.
0: Hard to find a more worthy use of predictive analytics than that. Evan, I want to ask you about another example. And this one I know relates to the problem of getting more low-income Californians into benefit programs for which they're eligible. Things like the EITC, which requires people to file taxes, even though many low-income folks aren't required to file a tax return when they don't file, that leaves families with fewer resources and billions of dollars of federal funds not coming to the state. Can you tell us, how did the lab tackle that with the EITC?
1: Sure. So our first effort was to test whether low-touch nudges would be enough to encourage families to claim the credit. Um, After all, these are folks who may simply be unaware of the program. Um, And we did a randomized trial, just like they do in medicine, where we contacted some people and didn't contact other people, and then we compared the two outcomes. And we did this for over a million people. We sent some of them text messages, some of them social media messages, even paper letters um, to try and explain the benefits and encourage them to claim the money that, in fact, they were owed. And guess what? It didn't work. Uh, We tried different messages, different messengers, different levels of formality. Nothing we tried moved the needle very much. And that was disappointing, but it was also an important lesson, which is that this is most likely not an awareness problem. Um, It's more likely that the reason people are not claiming these credits is because the process of filing taxes is complex and it's burdensome. So, uh, we're now sort of iterating on that research agenda with the state to try and simplify the process of claiming these credits. We're seeing if there is data that the state is already collecting uh, that can be used to pre populate some of the necessary forms needed to claim the earned income tax credit, which is really cool work and could provide a model for other states to follow. And um, this year in particular is a big deal because the stimulus payments are based on tax filings. So, the stakes this year. Are much higher than they would otherwise be uh, because there's been you know thousands of dollars uh, per family in in stimulus payments that if you didn't claim the credit it's likely that you're also probably not getting stimulus checks
0: it's kind of remarkable that the previous podcast interview with kelvin johnson from hud was about the iterative nature of evidence building trying things seeing what works when it doesn't trying new things that's a terrific example of that in fact Janie, can I ask you to give us another layer of detail about how the lab works?
2: Sure. I think it's important to know that at the heart of the California Policy Lab are our partnerships with public agencies. We orient our work towards the needs of public agencies, and our goal is to have impact. So we start each partnership by developing a research agenda with department leadership and other staff and understanding their urgent questions. Sometimes they're articulating policy questions and not research questions, and so it's a collaborative process to land on a research agenda. And we ask ourselves, do we have the subject matter expertise to do the work? Do we have the resources and staffing capacity to do the work that they need? And is there data available to answer these questions? The California Policy Lab is primarily uh, doing quantitative work with administrative data. And then once we agree on the research questions, we sign a data sharing agreement And we try to sign a master data sharing agreement that pre-negotiates all of the legal terms. That can be very time consuming. So what we wanna do is engage in a research partnership for many years over multiple projects. And these master data sharing agreements allow us to flexibly add new projects when they come up rather than renegotiate uh, the entire agreement from scratch. And so once we have the data sharing agreement in place, uh, we can start to do the work. And I'll let Evan give some details
1: Sure, so the the research is definitely the most substantial service that we that we offer. As Janie suggests, we're often helping governments to answer questions they've wanted to know for a long time. But it's not just the bigger picture questions um, that we're always answering. Sometimes it's smaller but highly relevant things that we can answer along the way. So just to give an example. One of our partners might come to us and want to know you know how many people are enrolled in homelessness services uh, who were incarcerated over the past year or who were diagnosed with serious mental illness and because we've done the work to get their data into a place that they themselves often don't have it, we can answer some of those questions which help them make programmatic decisions along the way that might they might face those kind of decisions daily um and that really is helpful to them in a way that you don't see in, the, in our published reports. And uh, you know this is part of a process of helping governments understand their data better. Um, we often are curating their data, documenting it better than they may have uh, in the past. And we're also interrogating their data in ways that they've never done, which sometimes helps them improve data collection and data quality and things like that. You also mentioned how we interact with faculty, so I wanted to say something briefly about that. You know, faculty have a ton of expertise and a ton of talent and capabilities in in doing things that often governments have a difficult time recruiting for. But they also have their own priorities, right? They have a a tenure clock in some cases, and they're interested in publishing. Um, They might also be interested in, you know, helping push policy forward or uh, helping California's governments. But there's that sort of dual incentive there. Um, So we often have to find projects for faculty that are, you know, win-win, that that serve both the interests of the faculty in in doing something that could maybe be published someday, and also the interests of governments in the question they really want to answer. The lucky thing for us, and in terms of staffing that you mentioned, is that we also have full-time staff, researchers on staff who are passionate about improving lives and improving government services, uh, but who, you know, aren't as tied to uh, publications in journals or things like that. And so we uh, use our staff on projects that sometimes have a policy importance and and an impact, but aren't necessarily, you know, academically interesting questions. So that's our, our staffing model. And then the last thing I'll, I'll mention which um, just in terms of services is we've we've developed a secure data hub um, for doing the analysis obviously the the work that we do uses highly sensitive administrative data and the governments who we're working with you know really expect that we're going to be treating that uh, data very carefully and that we have a lot of compliance measures in place and so we've had to create that data hub and in the process of doing so sometimes governments will come to us and say hey can you Can you host this, that, or the other for us? Or can you help us, uh, you know, link different data that we aren't able to do ourselves?
0: That's helpful, Evan. Uh, Both of your comments, I think, underscore how one of the most important assets that the lab brings is expertise around data. Uh, Maybe that's not surprising, but it's something that I definitely learned from our conversation. I want to ask you a couple final questions. One is, you've been up and running now for four years. Give us a sense, if you would, about how's it going? Uh, In other words, what are some of the successes or challenges that come to mind?
2: Sure. I I just want to reflect on the last year, you know, that for close to a year now, California, like the rest of the United States, has been in crisis as we've grappled with the pandemic and the economic fallout and unprecedented employment. And I, I mentioned that because prior to the pandemic, the California Policy Lab invested several years of effort in developing a research partnership with the California Employment Development Department, which is the agency that houses unemployment insurance and and tax data. And we had started research questions that were related to unemployment insurance. Um, And because of that effort, when the pandemic hit, we were able to quickly pivot to some very urgent questions around how the pandemic and quarantine policies were affecting employment and we would never have been able to operate at that speed had we not both invested in the research partnership and built the trust um, and the data access channels. But also because of our model being flexibly funded and not tied to federally funded research, we could pivot. We could make the decision to take staff and faculty time and you know almost instantly redirect it towards what was happening um, in real time. So we've produced a number of reports now that analyze, you know, at the individual level, the unemployment impacts of the pandemic, and they've been informing both state policy and federal policy in response uh, to the economic fallout. So I think that's the benefits of this type of model where you make a big investment up front in a research infrastructure that allows you to flexibly respond when you really need to.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to give a success and then we can talk about challenges. You know, Janie gave a specific example of our of our work. And, you know, there's dozens more we can give on that front. And don't get me wrong, it's really nice when one of our reports makes a big splash or gets in the New York Times or or changes a, you know, really high dollar program. But for me, I think the greatest success that I would point to is the cultural change that we're creating within government, the change in what they deem to be possible. It used to be that some of our partners, when posed with a, you know, certain problem in a meeting would say, well, we can't do that or we don't have that data. And now, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, they're saying, you know, that, that might be possible. Let's check with the California Policy Lab to see if we could pull that off. And uh, I think in, in showing them the value of their own data, we're really helping them to expand the frontier of ways that they can help serve the, the people of California. Um, so I, I would just point to some of the cultural changes. And they're, they're very small things that come up from time to time, but they, to me, they're a big deal
0: being able to change an organizational culture is always a big deal. So I appreciate that, especially expanding their sense um, of the possible. I want to give you both time before we wrap up to talk about challenges as well.
1: Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll start and then, and then we can go to Janie. Um, there are a ton of challenges in setting up a new research institute. Um, it's hard to pick just one. Um, I guess one thing I would mention is how hard it is to do project selection. We get approached with several good projects each month, and they always seem easier than they end up being in the end. And figuring out which ones are feasible, which ones are impactful, which ones are the right fit for our specific capabilities ends up being as much art as, as it is science, and we're always learning how to improve that process.
2: I would say, too, that we constantly struggle with data quality challenges because many of the data sets, as Evan mentioned, have been underutilized, which means that we're tackling some thorny issues for the first time when we curate um, and analyze data. So um, it's something that we deal with all the time and we have uh, staff who focus on this and we have processes for thinking through these these types of problems, but um, that it is a persistent challenge and we hope that we're contributing to improvement, not just for us, but for other researchers and our partners too.
0: I want to thank our guests, Janie Roundtree and Evan White, for telling us about the California Policy Lab. As some of our listeners may know, there's a growing number of policy labs in the US, most of them connected to universities. But some, like the Lab at DC, which we've profiled on the podcast, are based solely in government. They come with different structures and focus areas, but these labs have proven to help government agencies tackle important challenges. And the California Policy Lab is a great example. So, Janie and Evan, thanks again for sharing your insights.
1: Thanks so much.